1: Hi, listeners. Welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest is Dr. Cecile Fromon, editor of Afro-Catholic Festivals in the Americas, Performance, Representation, and the Making of Black Atlantic Tradition, published by Penn State University Press in 2019, and the paperback edition was just released in May of 2021. Afro-Catholic festivals in the Americas demonstrates how from the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, enslaved and free Africans in the Americas used Catholicism and Christian derived celebrations as spaces for autonomous cultural expression, social organization and political empowerment. Their appropriation of Catholic-based celebrations calls into question the long-held idea that Africans and their descendants in the diaspora either resignedly accepted Christianity or else transformed its religious rituals into syncretic objects of stealthy resistance. In cities and on plantations throughout the Americas, men and women of African birth or descent staged mock battles against heathens, elected Christian queens and kings with great pageantry, and gathered in festive rituals to express their devotion to the saints. The contributors to this volume draw connections between these Afro-Catholic festivals observed from North America to South America and the Caribbean, and their precedents in the early modern kingdom of Congo, one of the main regions of origin of men and women enslaved in the New World. Our guest, Dr. Cecile Fermon, is Associate Professor of History of Art at Yale University. So welcome, Dr. Fermon.
0: Thank you. I'm very happy to be joining you today. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we actually dive into discussions of the book, can you tell our listeners more about yourself?
0: Uh, Yes, I am a a professor in the uh, History of Art Department at Yale. um, And my writing and my teaching uh, focuses um, in particular on um, Central Africa, so Congo and Angola, and then in conversation and in relation with um, Brazil. Um, But more broadly, I teach um, and I research on African and Latin American visual and material culture and Uh, as well on the um, Atlantic world uh, and the emergence of the Black Atlantic uh, from the early modern period on. So from 1500 to 1800, and focusing also on the long shadows um, that this era and these uh, phenomena have cast on our own time.
1: Awesome. And I think that that definitely carries over um, into the scope of this book as as well, of course, in terms of just the breadth of it and whatnot. So I'm looking forward to hearing your uh, thoughts on the book as well. And speaking of, you know, this text, you mentioned uh, in the acknowledgments that this, you know, book actually kind of got started through a conference at Yale's Institute for Sacred Music. So can you tell us a little bit about the roots of this whole project?
0: Yes, thank you. Um, So as I was a fellow at the uh, Institute for Sacred Music, um, the Institute gave me the opportunity to uh, put together a a conference, a, a working day, Uh, on uh, a topic that I thought would be interesting um, to explore um, between scholars. Um, And in in my mind, uh, uh, I wanted to think more about uh, the Congadas, so um, this particular type of uh, festivals um, from Brazil that still exist today and during which um, uh, Afro-Brazilian communities elect and um, celebrate a king and queen um, that um, uh, represent um, their community and uh, represent uh, um, the sovereignty uh, to some extent of their uh, of their community within the larger Brazilian system, and so I was uh, able, with the support of the ISM, to invite uh, scholars from from Brazil, from uh, also around uh, the United States. Um, But what had already struck me uh, then was the ways in which there seemed to be real parallels, uh, both historically and in the contemporary moments, between these Congadas who even you know that even in the name were obviously connected to the Congo uh, and um, its historical past, which I had studied um, in my dissertation and my first book, um, and then other uh, uh, festivals really across the hemispheric America, so from north to south, and uh, in in places that uh, fell. Um, on either side of the linguistic, for example, um, divide between English speaking and Spanish speaking or Brazilian uh, or Portuguese speaking Americas. And so I invited a, a, a range of people. And in our conversation um, uh, during that one day conference, we uh, are really um explore that idea and it's really you know became clear to us that there was um uh, something really compelling uh, in bringing together these different types of festivals so um uh, new orleans uh, uh carnival or um uh, mexican um uh, early uh, 16th century um uh, festivals that involved uh, Afro-Mexican uh, characters, for example. Uh, and then we could really find um, a new type of connection to them if we triangulated them through um, the history of the Kingdom of Congo and in particular the history of uh, the Sangamento. So that's particular type of um, political but also a religious ceremony that sustained the political system of the Kingdom of Congo. And it was a festival that I had at the time just studied um, in my first book in, in some details. And as we came together, almost every uh, presentation started with... Um, the image that uh, was uh, on the cover of the book, uh, um, which is a representation of the Conga in, in Brazil in the uh, 19th century. Uh, and so we all joked, well, if we made a book uh, from this conference, we know what would be on the cover. And so uh, the idea of uh, doing a book uh, really kind of coalesced around uh, that image and around the conversation. And then, as you know, it happens. Um, some uh, of the contributors to the conference ended up not participating in the book, and then new uh, contributors uh, uh, came uh, onto the project and uh, contributed chapters to the book. So, you know, it was um, a conversation that started with the conference, but that continued uh, beyond it. Uh, and I think uh, um, I'm, you know, I'm happy to see that it continues. Uh, to, you know, to be uh, a point of conversation and inspiration for uh, other work uh, um, now that it is published as this uh, edited volume.
1: Yeah, and that kind of makes me think, too, um, your last points there. How do you see this, you know, book standing out, I guess, in the existing scholarship? Like, what sets apart this edited volume, uh, compared to, like, other discussions of some of these, you know, festivals and whatnot?
0: Yeah, so I think what we wanted to do with the book uh, as a group, um, and what I... I try to realize as an editor um was uh, several things so first uh, um we really wanted to make sure that the chapters would um be good for teaching um at the college level and uh, maybe uh Um, you know, maybe even uh, before that they would be accessible uh, even to uh, a public that uh, didn't have any background um, about a lot of those um, uh, events that are each in a way very well studied, but often within subfields that are um, uh, quite specialized uh, in a way. So, uh, for example, the Congadas are very well studied, uh, uh, in particular, uh, in Brazil, in Portuguese language scholarship, but, uh, for those of us teaching in English speaking, uh, countries, um, it is relatively harder to find material that is appropriate to share in an introductory class on this topic. So we wanted to, you know, keep an eye to this uh, to the classroom when we wrote the chapters. At the same time, um, these are all uh, works of, uh, uh, you know, real deep uh, research and really putting into play a real engagement with the uh, archive, uh, either by bringing to the fore new documents or um, more often bringing to the fore new interpretations of documents that um, we thought we knew uh, rather well um, before. And then the second second aspect is really the many, um, I would say, transversalities um, that are in the book. that uh, it's putting together um, uh, festivals and uh, uh, types of um, uh, uh, religious cultures Uh, that have been studied in different corners of academia because um, they belong to uh, different uh, linguistic realms. They belong to uh, South America or North America um, and so wouldn't have been uh, studied together. Also because um, they have been studied by different um, uh, disciplines. um, you know, some events have been studied by historians and others by ethnomusicologists or uh, scholars of religion. And in the book, we wanted to bridge all of those uh, divides uh, with um, an analysis of these different types of events um, that had, as a red thread, their common, you know, inspiration from uh, West Central Africa, um, but then that wouldn't otherwise have been brought uh, together necessarily under the same cover.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. It sounds like it's kind of a one-stop shop for kind of different case studies and perspectives that, as you were pointing out, haven't been brought together um, before. So I think, I definitely think it's a useful tool for that. Um, And that's really cool too, that you can use it sort of as a teaching tool as well. Um, So I think that might be some some different types of readers, you know, that might be able to use this book um, in those different ways, and then. You know, moving on more to the book's content as well, right? In the introduction, you state that this book, quote, reveals how enslaved and free Africans and later their descendants often used Christianity and Christian-derived celebrations as physical and mental spaces for autonomous cultural expression, social organization, and political empowerment, end quote. So can you talk about how these festivals came about, or festivities rather, especially thinking about, for instance, the background that you kind of lay out in the introduction.
0: Um, Yes, so at the core of the project uh, of bringing together this um, analysis uh, um, is um, the common consideration of those festivals that I uh, mentioned, or I would just should say those political ceremonies um, from uh, the Kingdom of Congo. Um, So those were ceremonies called uh, sangamentos, which is a word that is a a Portuguese um, version of a Kikongo word um, that uh, is the language uh, of uh, the Kingdom of Congo. Um, That means um, rejoicing or celebration, um, uh, basically. And these sangamentos were a ways for the king of Congo and then the elite of the country to restage at key political and religious moments the foundation of the kingdom of Congo as a Christian kingdom. So that um, these uh, uh, war dances, um, basically, so they are very spectacular Uh, dances that involved uh, mock battles um, between um, um, the elite and then their followers, uh, kind of in a hierarchical um, uh, way. Um, And so they restaged first the foundation of the Kingdom of Congo in its deep origins um, uh, from a foreign king who arrived into um, the location of the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, bringing about new technologies and a new philosophy. And then the second foundation of the Kingdom of Congo around 1500, uh, when a newly Christian king who had learned to be Christian as the first uh, generation uh, of um, uh, the Congo elite who grew up with Portuguese priests being present uh, in the region. So this newly Christian king reconquers the kingdom in a way and turns it into a Christian kingdom. So this Sangamento is a festive summary of the um, reimagination uh, of Christianity into uh, Congo um, mythology that at the same time also turns Congo mythology into a Christian story um, of uh, the advent uh, of the new religion in the kingdom. And so why was that important? Um, uh, uh, Was that that moment of celebration became key in affirming power and legitimacy for the kings of the Congo, and then their elites in their provincial capitals, for example. And so that was a key moment um, in the political life of the Congo. And uh, the Congo in West Central Africa uh, was one of the principal regions um, uh, from which um, men uh, and women uh, would be enslaved and then taken to the Americas from the beginning of um, uh, the era of the slave trade, uh, really to the end of it. Um, and so that background uh, of uh, Christianity or that background of um, the language of Christianity as a political tool and as a festive uh, um, a manifestation of a political power, uh, traveled with um, enslaved uh, Africans to the Americas, and uh, what we are looking at in the books is the in the book is the different moments in which we can recognize that background in the Americas, in the coronation of the kings and queens of the Congo in Brazil, in a way that is you know made rather obvious even in the name of the festival, um, but also as different um, uh, authors in the book uh, discuss um, in North America, uh, in Mexico, and then Bringing us to a broader reflection, that if we are considering the origin and trajectory of um, African American religiosity, and I, by African American I mean it in a hemispheric sense, um, then we should look at uh, Christianity itself and uh, Catholicism and Congo Catholicism um, uh, more specifically as a, an African um, a source for uh, that religiosity instead of uh, considering uh, Christianity as the foil against which um, African-American uh, religions uh, would develop, or as um, the outside imposition um, that was um, willy-nilly co-opted and transformed by um, enslaved and Afro-descendant communities uh, over time. So we can um, have a broader and a richer understanding of the nature and the texture of African-American religions that take seriously um, Christianity as one of the sources and space for the development um, uh, of African-American religions.
1: Yeah, and that kind of uh, sets us up for the first part of the book really well. You were kind of talking about this in terms of the segmentals and, you know, the ritual battles um, that were brought over from the Congo Kingdom. Um, so how do you see some of these se- like same themes of, like we were talking about, like spaces for cultural expression, social organization and whatnot, how do you see that play out in some of the case studies um, presented in part one, for instance, like New Orleans um, that starts off with?
0: Yes, no, I think in the, so in the first part, um, um, we have uh, uh, Jeroen de Wolf um, discussing a hypothesis um, that is proposing uh, about um, the origins of the um, Mardi Gras Indians in New Orleans uh, in that kind of rich and deep background of uh, West Central African Christianities. Um, And also Miguel Barerio that is discussing uh, early um, uh, uh, Afro-Christian performance in Mexico um, that involved a group uh, 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 of African uh, characters that also um, he demonstrates uh, uh, would have had Uh, in their kind of cultural uh, uh, background uh, uh, knowledge of um, the uh, Sangamentos in in the Congo. And then uh, Kevin Dawson, who is um, reading for us a a naval battle um, on the coast of Brazil in the early 19th century um, that is staging a fight, a mock fight between Moors and Christian, which is a type of event that is very common in Iberian kind of um, uh, religious festivals or folk practices that has to do with um, the uh, uh, Reconquista in Iberia and, and the really kind of deeply held uh, understanding of Muslims being the foils of Christian Europe. Um, So the Moors standing for the Muslim and the Christians being the Spaniards, and then um, the defeat of the Muslims by um, the Spaniards being staged there. And um, but he's asking the question, well, what does it mean when you have um, uh, uh, Africans in Brazil staging that kind of battle? Um, and looking at sangamentos, which were also already in the Congo, a restaging of sorts of the same ideas of the defeat of a a non-Christian foil by a Christian uh, kingdom, in this case, the Congo, then um, these strange and uh, uh, a little bit offbeat um, uh, events start making a lot more sense in terms of what it may have meant and what the uh, uh, people uh, from uh, African origins or descent staging them uh, were involved in creating by staging this very elaborate uh, and very important uh, events. So across um, the Americas um, and also across the centuries, because within that first part, we go from the 16th century to the 19th century and we see echoes and parallels Um, that again, the triangulation through West Central Africa allows us to um, pinpoint, analyze, and then uh, link together in a way that is, I think, broadening our understanding of um, African-American tradition at large.
1: Yeah, I think that was a really smart way to organize um, the book because it seems to flow really well. And it, you know, if you were teaching with this, for instance, you could, you know, absolutely see um, the way the introduction situates, you know, that first part. Um, so I think that was really neat setup um, for that. And then, you know, going on to part two, uh, continuing sort of like with these different types of uh, festive traditions, right? You start getting into uh, still looking at the Americas here the way Black kings and their, quote, representation and performance, diplomacy, and the archive. Uh, So in these chapters in part two, how do we see these king figures complicated? How are they discussed here?
0: Yeah, so the part two is um, uh, delving um, more um, deeply um, uh, into uh, the ways in which these festivals are being inscribed um, or on the other hand silenced within the shape of the colonial archive um, uh, uh, specifically uh, in in brazil and uh, in the portuguese atlantic um, so these festivals um, and the ways in which uh, the people stating them um, are taking place and then are um, having a life of themselves within the political uh, and social structure of uh, colonial Brazil, in the case of uh, Lisa Void's chapter, um, and then um, bridging the Atlantic from Brazil to uh, Dahomey, so West Africa, uh, in the case of Junia Ferreira Furtado's uh, chapter. Um, uh, is uh, becoming apparent there by um, asking uh, the ways, um, asking about the ways in which um, those Afro descendants who are staging um, uh, these festivals are able to use the tools um, uh, in terms of um, uh, the representation tools. So uh, uh, Lisa Voigt is talking about the um, the book uh, um, that they publish to celebrate some of their uh, festivals, for example, so using alphabetic literacy and publishing and print culture uh, at large um, to uh, promote and also memorialize um, their uh, festive traditions um, um, appears in a certain shape in the archive, and that uh, should be taken in conversation with the other um, uh, types of memory or embodied memories that uh, uh, belong to, uh, to the long repertoire of uh, Afro-Brazilian traditions. And put together, again, gives us a, a richer understanding of, um, I think, colonial Brazil uh, at large. And in fact, so important uh, is this um, embodied uh, memories um, of um, of that uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian traditions um, that we can follow them back uh, in um, uh, the experience of uh, missionaries. Actually, not missionaries, um, ambassadors from Brazil uh, who are um, tasked by um, the government to travel uh, to uh, Dahomey, so to West Africa. And they travel there with this deep uh, embodied memories of uh, um, Afro-Brazilian festivals and traditions and... Um, that serve to them as the backgrounds against which they are able to approach uh, festivals and rituals and ceremonies um, in west africa so that it gives us again a transversal view and uh, a transversal reading of the connections and the ebbs and flows that link um, the uh, different shores of the atlantic world and that you know gives textures to the Black Atlantic. So we don't have uh, simply a story of um, a displacement and then diffusion of um, African traditions into the Americas um, or um, European traditions uh, into the Americas, but you see uh, back and forth and uh, recreations that in some cases, are going from Africa to Brazil and then back to Africa, and that the backgrounds um, of through which these um, experiences are being uh, recorded and perceived is one that is itself complicated. And as scholars, um, Voigt and Furtado are adding, you know, one more moment of, um, you know, perceiving uh, these traditions and analyzing them that is inscribing itself in this long history uh, of back and forth.
1: Yeah, and it definitely sounds like making sure that, you know, considering it's a lot about, you know, representation, ensuring that the agency of these peoples are brought to light, maybe um, more than what you were saying before about some other, a scholarship that has simply kind of presented Catholicism or Christian derived things as more stagnant um, or more imposed. And I think that's a really powerful thing um, that comes through in the book for sure. Um and going on to part three as well, and this is where you come in more directly as well. Um, and you were talking about this too a little bit with part two about how, you know, looking at these different sources brings those through lines to life, right? So, can you kind of talk about part three entitled Reconsidering Primary Sources here? Can you talk about your research process for your chapter in this part? And then, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the key takeaways from Diane Stewart's chapter as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, uh earlier, um, the uh, all of the participants in the project um, uh, um, kind of um, good spiritedly agreed that uh, the lithograph uh, by uh, uh, Rugendas would be the perfect uh, cover for the book. And uh, as the art historian in the group, I thought that you know it would uh, 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 be appropriate for me to to look uh, further at that image um, in light of what. Um, our projects was trying to realize uh, collectively. And at the first level, so this image um, is representing um, one of those congadas, so one of those moments of the election of the king and queen of Congo uh, in Brazil among a group uh, of um, uh, uh, confraternal brothers and sisters um, uh, within the orbit of the church. And uh, it is a European image made by a, a European traveling artist who had spent some time uh, in Brazil and kind of give us this um, view of the event that is, um, you know, very much about uh, a local color and it is uh, the p- picturesque. and um, But at the same time, it is based on firsthand observation. It is um, uh, really... Um, uh, engaged with uh, giving some um, uh, specifics in terms of t- uh, topography, for example, so you're able to recognize what church is including, Um And then, uh, um, you know, some other, um, um, I guess, almost ethnographic uh, uh, details, right? Details that could be read in an ethnographic lens, um, because we're able to, um, you know, to cross them with uh, the written archive and as well as more recent festivals um, that are following uh, still uh, the same template. However, it is also an image that is very easily uh, read as a um, carnivalesque scene, that it looks like a world upside down with um, uh, Africans, which in this context of colonial Brazil, are very easily and directly read as um, enslaved or at least uh, people at the bottom of uh, the social hierarchy that are, you know, wearing some elements of European royalty. So a crown here, a sash there, um, a a powdered wig, etc. But that fits... um, not comfortably uh, and definitely not within the ideas of decorum of uh, European royal pageantry. Um, So you can think that, well, you know, it is just um, um, disenfranchised people uh, uh, seizing a moment of freedom or relative uh, freedom in which they can put the world upside down. But in fact, if we bring this um, uh, image um, into perspective with the background of the Sangamento, then we see that some of the key elements that are being shown in the image are actually not badly understood European um, uh, regalia, but are very precisely um, uh, reinvented with the means of uh, a population uh, that lived in uh, poverty and at the bottom of the social hierarchies of colonial Brazil. Um, um, So reinventing the insignia of royalty from the Kingdom of Congo, such as um, the the crown, uh, for example, um, and then restaging the dances that are typical of the sangamentos so that um, it demands from us a more subtle um, and also a more textured um uh, analysis uh, than one um that is seeing you know a misunderstanding on the part of the africans or that is um uh, seeing uh, the festival as kind of a moment of uh, freedom that is given by the church and uh, taken advantage of by uh, the African populations as they can. But instead, we should see this image as a reflection of a set of organization, um, restaging of uh, uh, choreographies, dance steps, music. You have uh, Central African musical instruments that are being represented there. uh, hierarchies, uh, there is very clear, um, uh, clearly different types of peoples being uh, represented, and also insignia, the flags, um, uh, the different elements that are being worn that echo um, a very specifically the background of West Central Africa. So that what we have is a document um, that we are at risk of misreading if we don't take into account that deep transatlantic uh, background. And um, uh, uh, Diane Stewart's chapter is giving another, and also um, a a very um, uh, poignant and I think very powerful uh, example of how these kinds of misreadings have actually been so important in the historiography of, um, uh, in her case, Afro-Caribbean religions, in that um, in uh, the interpretation of Orisha uh, uh, tradition in Trinidad, there has been an understanding that on the one hand, you had the African side that was Yoruba that came with Um, uh, a new wave of um, uh, African men and women that came from the Yoruba area in West Africa to Trinidad um, uh, in the 19th century that mixed as a, a syncretic uh, process with um, uh, European um, uh, Christianity uh, to create uh, the Orisha religion that would be uh, kind of a um, a, um, uh, a syncretic uh, and syncretic tradition, um, but thinking about the deep background of Afro uh, Catholicism and um, that came with uh, West Central Africans who already were in Trinidad before uh, the uh, Yoruba uh, population arrived, she's able to turn back to uh, the archive and see the ways in which the ritual conversation that happened was also a conversation between uh, Yoruba practitioners and uh, Afro-Catholics that were already present um, in um, in uh, Trinidad. So that instead of a binary, um, you know, oppression and resistance encounter between Africans with non-Christian religions uh, and Europeans uh, uh, with uh, uh, as elders of Christianity, you have a much more complex um, and interesting uh, conversation that involved um, different religious traditions held by Africans and Afro-descendants um, who uh, came together and had this very rich uh, ritual uh, and, uh, um, um, you know, religious uh, uh, conversation that uh, gave rise to um, uh, the Orisha uh, uh, tradition in Trinidad.
1: Yeah, very cool. And uh, I think the section and, you know, even with the other parts that you were discussing, it's kind of amazing how interdisciplinary the book is and all the different types of sources that, you know, you and, you know, Diane Stewart were drawing upon, and, you know, like you were talking about towards the beginning, using both archival and ethnographic stuff. So I think it's even from a methodological standpoint, I think people will learn a lot um, in this too, in terms of how it, you know, looks at these different sources. And, you know, speaking of which, too, there's kind of a different type of source that, you know, you all bring up in part four our reality right and you know the idea of the making of diasporic tradition so can you talk about um some of the conclusions in this more aural based last section part four what do we learn there
0: Yeah, so um, um, in the uh, fourth part, um, uh, Michael Yanaga is um, bringing us to the present, right, Uh, uh, in a way. I think a lot of the other chapters are in conversation um, between um, a historical moment and um, uh, uh, contemporary echoes, Um, but in um, uh, the discussion of domestic celebrations for Catholic saints, Um, really in very different locations um, of uh, um, the Afro-diasporic space, uh, Yanaga is uh, giving us a glimpse at what that kind of new understanding or renewed, right, understanding of the Christian dimension of African-American religiosity can do in our approaches and interpretation uh, uh of uh contemporary uh, afro diasporic religious traditions um such as um those uh moments of um ceremonies and uh domestic devotion to particular uh, saints in altars that find um uh, themselves within homes and uh where you see different groups coming together um, and uh, bringing uh, their songs and their prayers um, in um, uh, what we discover by and large to be uh, related and probably Central African uh, uh, inspired um, uh, types of ceremonies. Um, so that it kind of brings everything uh, together uh, for me um, because it really shows how, you know, that. Deep um, engagement with the past um, can help us really uh, uh, bring new light to even very contemporary practices. Um, And it can show us uh, ways in which, you know, we've cut up the Americas um, by language and by different uh, imperial uh, traditions. Also, we've uh, uh, coded up by um, the divide of Catholicism versus prote- Protestantism. But there are still uh, really deep lines that run through, um, such as the Central African uh, heritage, for example. Uh, and if we think about it, you know, the enslaved men and women that came from Central Africa or really any regions uh, from the Americas, you um, Ended up populating um, the American continents, you know, from north to south. So, um, you know, if we, even if we speak about uh, Latin America and uh, English-speaking America, um, there is something really powerful in thinking about um, the Congo America or the Central African America that also exists there and that is still present and is still um, a structuring part of, um, our, you know, societies and our, uh, religious traditions, um, be it in North America or, um, in South America. So I really, uh, I really, uh, was, uh, grateful for this kind of concluding chapter of the book. Um, because for me, it is bringing it, uh, um, to, um, uh, to our own moments and, uh, showing how we can, you know, rethink, um, uh, our approaches to um, our own practices.
1: Yeah. And that got me thinking too, again, like you said, it kind of brings us forward in time, but, you know, think you said something at the beginning about how you hope to see, or you start, you're starting to see other studies, you know, maybe building on this book. So let me ask you this kind of with your expertise, where do you see or hope to see studies on, Congo-derived, or other words, these Afro-Catholic festive traditions. Where do you want to see? Where do you see the f- future of this the study going? Where do you see this book, you know, pushing those studies further? If that makes sense.
0: Yes. No. Absolutely. I think you know. I'm hoping um, that there is a lot of um, um, mm. methods. Uh, that are uh, demonstrated uh, in, in this book or uh, showcased in the book that can then be taken to uh, different uh, uh, different places. Um, and also that um, there are kind of hints, little pieces of uh, information, little um, moments where you have... Um, several items that come together that uh, the different authors read as the key to interpreting a certain um, uh, type of event as maybe Central African-inspired, that then can be brought to the analysis of different areas and different moments. that um, may not have been um, uh, talk, uh, talked about in the book. Um, so um, I'm thinking about um, f- uh, things uh, like, uh, you know, the election of a leader within an uh, African or Afro descendant group. Um, in a particular place um, uh, in the Americas that uh, would involve, you know, some of the practices that we described here that all of a sudden would go from um, kind of obscure or you know, and difficult to interpret to um, really clearly related to some of those uh, traditions. So there are um, definitely things like elections in uh, Albany, New York in the t- uh, 19th century um, that I think could also be related to the West Central African traditions um, that are awaiting uh, to be understood um, in this way. And then I think at the broader level, there is a way in which... Um, There's been a lot of emphasis on the uh, Yoruba uh, dimension of uh, Afro diasporic uh, religions in the Americas um, that um, are Absolutely, you know, have been absolutely crucial in understanding um, uh, those uh, religious traditions, but also that have left relatively little space for um, looking at uh, the Central African aspect of things. And um, and partly it was because the Central African aspect of it, of things um, tended to be very much. Um, Uh, imbricated with uh, Christianity, as uh, we've been uh, uh, talking about. So less recognizable um, to some extent. And with um, some of the hints and then some of the methods that um, we have brought together in the book, I'm hoping that it will be easier to pay closer attention to the Central African aspect of things as well as the Yoruba side, so that it will renew our conversation on um, African-American religion uh, in that regard.
1: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I'll have to keep an eye out um, on where things go following the book. And speaking of where things go, I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Frommon, what other projects are you working on these days?
0: Yes, thank you. Well, I am uh, <laughs> working on a range of projects, partly um, because of the pandemic. So I, I, have found myself um, uh, exploring different, uh, uh, different areas. But I just uh, uh, finished a book um, that is, uh, in a way, following some of the uh, methodological questions that um, that are, in part, uh, in the book having to do with. I'm um, challenging the limits, uh, or I should say the perimeter of um, the European um, archive, uh, visual archive, uh, about non-European places and locals and tradition, um, by thinking seriously about the conditions um, under which European images of European forms uh, made for Europeans are being created, um, and uh, by thinking seriously about these conditions, to uh, pay attention to the encounters that were at the basis of his images. So, so encounters between Europeans and um, the people that they called the others. Um, that I think were really important in the shape that this image took. And so if we take seriously um, these conditions, then uh, I argue that we should see that encounter as uh, one of the authors of those images. Um, And so that's something that we could apply to the Rugandas image that, even though it's an image made by a, a European artist for European viewers, uh, but about uh, Afro-Brazilian uh, um, uh, festival makers, um, I think the conditions of the encounter between Rugendas and uh, uh, that festive moment is also part of the uh, authorship of the image. And as such, the festival goers, are also uh, in part the authors of that image.
1: That sounds really interesting, and I'll look forward to checking that out. I'm excited. Um, But thank you so much, Dr. Froman, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, and listeners, just as a reminder, uh, this was an interview with Dr. Cecile Fermon, editor of Afro-Catholic Festivals in the Americas, Performance, Representation, and the Making of Black Atlantic Tradition, published by Penn State University Press in 2019, and released in paperback uh, this May of 2021. This is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.